Welcome back to the 52nd episode of Closer Mentality. Not only is it National Girls and Women in Sports Day, but tomorrow, February 3rd, marks one year since I put out the first episode of this podcast. Today's episode looks back at some of my favorite moments with all of my guests. I've met the most amazing people since I started creating this content and sharing these stories. I wanted to use this episode to not only highlight the variety of life and sport experiences that have been shared, but also the overarching topics that seem to act as constants even through these differing experiences. Before I do that, though, I want to thank BetterHelp.com for sponsoring Closer Mentality into Season 2. I'm happy to have them on for another week. Now that we're a month into 2022, how are your resolutions going? Are they causing you added stress? I know they are for me. That's why BetterHelp is the perfect resource. In 2022, I want to continue sharing amazing stories through Closer Mentality, and BetterHelp assists in furthering that mission. One of my overarching mental health goals is to focus on taking time to carefully tell each episode, taking into account both triumphs and triggers. Not everyone has a happy, successful relationship with athletic participation. I don't take these episodes lightly, and sometimes there's no other way to tell these stories without working through heavy topics like self-harm, depression, and anxiety. I can't rush to put these athletes' lives into context. One of the best ways to reach your 2022 goals, even those which may seem insurmountable, is to follow through on healthy mental health habits by working with a licensed therapist. Now, I'm bringing that option to you, the listeners. If you've ever listened to a Closer Mentality episode and thought, I feel exactly the same way, I'm working with BetterHelp Sponsorship to bring online therapy to your phone and computer. BetterHelp offers video, phone, and live chat options, and you can speak to a licensed therapist in less than 48 hours. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. BetterHelp has more than 20,000 licensed therapists around the country, and you have access to them anytime. You can get thoughtful messages from your therapist, and if you aren't happy, it's free to change providers. If you're worried about the cost of traditional talk therapy, BetterHelp also plans for that with accessible financial aid options. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Join the over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. You deserve to prioritize your mental health this year. Get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com forward slash closer mentality. That's betterhelp.com forward slash closer mentality. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. The link is also in the show notes. Now, let's get back to the episode. As I was looking back through the athletes I've gotten to speak with, a few things have stood out. First, it doesn't matter how objectively successful you are in your sport. Mental health can rear its ugly head even as you're standing on an Olympic podium or winning a national championship. I compiled a list of the overarching topics that all my guests alluded to, and it paints an interesting picture of mental health advocacy among elite performers. Of 51 episodes, I had five athletes focus specifically on identity outside of sports. Episode 50's Isis Holt had just won a gold medal when she came to the shocking realization that medals and Olympic podiums didn't mean anything to her. She was at the tail end of her teen years and had been consistently breaking world records, but none of the extrinsic motivation mattered. I remember being at the Commonwealth Games in 2018, and I just won my gold medal at that event, and I took it home, or I took it back to the village, and I was sitting on the little couch in our apartment, and it was just me because it was quite late, and I had the medal in front of me on the table, and it was like shiny and beautiful, it was in its box. I was looking at it, and I felt nothing. I just looked at it, and I was like, this is great. 
but it doesn't feel like I earned it for the right reasons. And so that was this huge moment of, I guess, realization for me that I, I knew that if I didn't take a step back from what I was doing, I would either be doing it continually for the wrong reasons or just learn to hate it. And that was something I really didn't want. And it was really important for me that I could look at that objectively and know that I wasn't in the right place to continue being in the position I was. A similar situation happened to episode 22's Anne O'Neill. She found that her self-worth was excessively dictated by her stats on the court at Iowa State. One of the experience I had is that I was somewhat of a one-dimensional person at that time. I loved basketball so much, and I loved the the school, I loved team, I loved all of those things, but they all kind of fell into one dimension of who I was, because it was Iowa State, whether it was athletics or whether it was basketball. So I really considered myself at that time a one-dimensional person. And once those go away, those titles, you start seeing the world in color again. And I call it a 3D human. It's actually a, a, a name that I've trademarked. Because as a 3D human, you're looking and curious about everything, you know, almost back to those times when you are a kid and you're trying all the different sports and all the different um, outdoor activities that you can find. You're just constantly curious. And at the end of that basketball time was the space for me to start looking again of what was interesting. Episode 23's Natalie Allport followed the next week with her story of snowboarding for Team Canada but putting too much emphasis on her inclusion on the national team. When snowboarding ended for her, she fell into a mental space not conducive to success. She set out on a journey to redefine her path. It made me realize that like, I'm not what I do. So like, I'm just a big believer now, like you're a human being and not a human doing. And so before I thought I was just defined by what I do. And so not making the Olympics and then quitting snowboarding a year later, I was like, that's what I'm defined by. Like, I'm a failure. I'm uh, I gave my life to this and then I didn't make it. And now I have to like restart or figure something else or what is my future? Everything I envisioned was in this sport. So like, what is my life five, 10 years down the line going to be now? Um, and so I was just able to be like, wait a second. No, like who I am is more important than the things that I do or the things that I accomplish or the things you put in your Instagram bio or whatever it is. Um, so that was a really big stepping stone in that path to healing. And of course, one month didn't fix everything. Um, there's still tons of work to do. There's always going to be work to do on that process, but it was a big Kickstarter for sure. So what kickstarts an athlete to redefine their life outside of competition? For episode 16's Corey Camp, pushing into the next phase of his life required that he calm down, take a step back, and analyze what part swimming played in his identity as a human. He didn't feel the need to disassociate the pieces of himself from the whole. Instead, his focus was on using his athletic career as a stepping stone toward the best version of himself. I know when, when swimming stopped for me, I wanted to just like dive right into the next thing and just like forget about it and just be like, well, I was burnt out. Screw it. Like, I'm done. And I really wish I took a little bit more time to just pause, process, and really sit with this question of who am I? beyond this like what am i actually as a person as a human being how did swimming represent that rather than define that and i think there's a fine balance there of taking the time to process and still moving forward and not dwelling in the past 
Episode 26's Q Williams used his time playing football at Northwestern as a way to memorialize his athletic career, while also not glamorizing the physical and mental toll that the sport had on him. Now, he works with other male athletes to redefine their journeys post-sport into positive memories. The memories, the experiences, like what those trophies represent for me, my memories, the, um, the lessons that I learned, the person that I am because of that sport. And when it comes to brain injury, like we know that there's only so much that we can control right now with the longevity of our brain, our mental health long-term, if you've sustained concussions and repetitive head trauma. Um, so I just try to focus on the controllables, you know? That's how I reconcile it. I just focus on the controllables. Um, I focus on ingesting uh, the right things that are good for my brain, good for my body. Um, you know, follow follow my own protocol, follow my own method and stay stay there, you know? Do that the best as I can. It's not just about negative emotions regarding athlete identity, though. Injured athletes run through a wavelength of emotions on the road to rehabilitation. Episode 14's Levi Mavores detailed his experience setting his new normal post-surgery. One of the unintended great consequences of getting injured is you realize how fragile the game is. Um, and, I, and, I, and I feel pretty confident that anybody that's gone through a serious surgery, serious injury will tell you that. Like it gives you a new perspective on like, I can, if I can do this without pain, like that's a, that's a, that's a win in and of itself. And so let's go have some fun. Let's see what happens. Um, so so really being able to just go on the mound and and enjoy you know my senior year pain free and not worry about that. Just worry about pitching was really what what you know made it made it easier for me to just kind of be like, oh, hey, you know, we're playing ball today. Let's go have some fun. Whether uninjured or attempting to rehab, being an athlete is taking closer mentality guests all over the world. Experiencing different cultures and seeing life through the athlete lens has shaped many of the guests' viewpoints for the better. Episode 27, Steve Fisher lets snowboarding be the catalyst for his world travel. He learned how to conduct himself on an international stage because of his X Games experience. You know, it kind of goes back to, um, you know, learning responsibility as a young adult and learning um, a lot of how the world works and you know, just kind of the global travel thing, the international friends and networking that we were able to do, um, seeing places all over the world that a lot of people are not as fortunate to be able to get to see and, and experience and all that sort of stuff is, you know, I, I look at the whole experience and it was in, in its entirety, without a doubt, my best life. It didn't matter what age they were when sport first introduced them to other cultures and ways of thinking. For episode 46's Tista and Jared Sullivan, soccer became a world language. I had gone with him to Assisi when he was 15. We were walking through the plaza at, you know, maybe 11.30 at night, you know, late at night, but it's a very safe area. And he had his ball that he was dribbling and people would make comments about the ball. A couple of times he'd pass it or they'd, you know, ask for the ball. So asking this little kid just, you know, walking down the street to pass the ball to them and they'd pass it back and forth. So just, I don't know if they were friendlier or more open to interaction, but it almost seemed like having the soccer ball was an invitation to a conversation or to, you know, some sort of interaction. And I don't think you get that here. Like the Solomons, episode 39's Jesse Bradley found that his time playing professional soccer in Zimbabwe 
showed him the difference in societal constructs and what soccer meant to the world. In Africa, it was the generosity and the hospitality that stood out to me. The kindness, the warmth. People would, you know, give you anything, and and just not because they had to, because they wanted to. It's like, let's say they didn't have much food, they would bring up the best piece of meat for you, and they would just do that out of love and honor and hospitality. And I thought, you know, hospitality isn't about what what you have in your bank account or your home or how big your home is or how clean your home is. Your hospitality and generosity is about what's in your heart. And I thought, wow, with all we have in America, imagine if we had the same generosity. If we opened up our lives and homes and just cared for people with that unselfish love, how powerful that would be! And so I was going to other places. I was grateful that English was spoken. I started to learn a little into ballet, but not much. And、uh, so same language, very different cultures. And I think we can learn so much from each other. For some athletes, what stood out most about their experiences overseas wasn't the way in which the cultures enveloped them; it was the fellow teammates that made their sport experiences memorable. Episode nine's Maria Procopio was playing soccer with young women nearly a decade older than her on a provincial Italian club. Even still, her teammates saw her as equal. The schooling for like the international schools, so like the English-speaking school, was not far from there, and that was the place where a lot of the athletes stayed. So there was two other Canadians. They were much older. They weren't in high school. They weren't even in college. They were like they were older women who were Canadian playing professionally for this team. But obviously, I was so young. I was fourteen, and they were like twenty-two, twenty-three at the time. So I was just kind of playing pickup soccer, playing for like a local team, and then the local team I was obviously too good、um, and too skillful for them, and then I moved up, and then eventually I was on their team, and I was 14 playing with older women,、um, and it was like third division at the time, and then I moved up to my own age, second division, own age, first division, and then I was representing our province, Abruzzo, and then that's how I got. Into the national team, but it was all through like 11 v 11 or calcetto, which is like small, like street style soccer, which I wasn't used to playing here. So it was like really rough and stuff. But oh my god, it was amazing. Having a group of people who were simultaneously so similar yet so different served other guests well. Having someone out competing alongside them as they laid it all out on the line was crucial to not only athletic success but also personal enjoyment. Episode 29 and 30s, Mac Marcou and Tristan Rogers. Detailed how working together to get down the ski slopes helped define their work ethics, both together and separately. Clearly defining goals and expectations for success was of the utmost importance when competing on the world stage. You know, a guy for me has to be someone who is a really strong skier and and someone that、um, can be very consistent on their feet.、Um, <laughs> so you know, not somebody who's super loose and and.、Uh, Checkers or records kind of mentality. It's a lot of fun, and I and I I love that aspect of ski racing. But I need someone who's you know just very consistent, someone that can、um, you know be able to multitask a lot because not only are they thinking about what they're doing, they're skiing, they're relaying information back and forth, and then you know we just have to be able to <laughs> have to be able to get along off the hill as well because we spend、uh, a heck of a lot of time together throughout seasons, and、um, you know just. I've been super fortunate over the years to just always land with really great dudes that are a lot of fun on and off the snow, and just become、uh, part of the family. <laughs> the special part about guiding a visually impaired skier is you get to see the scoreboard before they do, and、uh, you get to break that news to them if, if you know they did well or 
or not. Um, you kind of have a gut feeling if you had a good run, but you never know, like I said, how everybody else performs. So for the guy to be able to look at the scoreboard and see green and break that news to the athlete, I think is the most special part of the day. Um, and sharing that enjoyment together in the finish is, is really, really special. And, and it's unique because, um, like I said, you're the one who gets to break that news to, to the athlete. Um, thankfully we, we've never gone to the bottom and, and seen red, but I'm sure that's going to be difficult. Um, it's going to happen eventually and, and, you know, got to be prepared for that. But, um, yeah, we're just going to focus on seeing green and, and being happy in the finish for now. Although Marku and Rogers haven't dealt extensively with large scale failure, many closer mentalities guests have been deeply touched by the concept. Four episodes have been defined by stories of failure and athletes reorienting their mindsets to mitigate the effects. Episode 4's JT Heenan coaches Salem University's baseball team with the mentality that failure is a form of scaffolding. I don't program for your feelings. I program for you to get better. So if you're failing a lot, um, you're getting better in the, in the process. I mean, like if you're lifting weights, you don't want to fail every set. But if you're getting to a point where you can't squat a weight, I mean, you're getting stronger because you're moving the weight up. Um, if you're, you know, you know, I think there's always it's forms of scaffolding, but um yeah, that's really our process. You know, there's no winners and losers. There's only winners and learners. The tenacity that it takes to improve at a sport requires that an athlete face his or her challenges head on. Episode 17's Michael Manswell saw failure as an opportunity for personal and athletic growth. Adversity is an opportunity to grow and develop new skills. So that way, when you look at it, it's not as intimidating because you're looking at it as a challenge as opposed to a roadblock or a setback. So for me, it's now I'm not sitting here and be like, oh, I seek adversity. I'm ready for when things don't go according to plan. But when they do, I know how to handle myself mentally, physically, spiritually, and depending on the adversity, like financially and, um, you know, socially and professionally. So for me, I just look at it as a way to grow. And then honestly, one of the most useful coping strategies I've ever used is just finding uh, finding the humor in it. Finding the humor in failure is a necessity, especially in sports where failing is second nature. Episode 31, Spencer Horowitz encountered failure every time he stepped up to bat, but it wasn't painted with a negative brush. It's just learning how to deal with failure. It's accepting the failure. It's accepting that this is a really hard game, that you can do everything right and still fail. It's not like football where you can throw an interception you're going to be back out there two minutes later with another drive it's you mess up you're sitting down for 20 minutes in the field thinking about what i should have done what i could have done and then you have to go back and refocus for another 20 minutes where you can get five at bats that last all of five minutes in a four-hour game it's it's learning to to just focus on those at-bats, taking them each individual and it's breaking it down from an at-bat to even a pitch to even the next moment. It's just, it's so, so time consuming, but not, if that, that, I don't know. It's just, it's such a long game and such a long season that you just have to break it down piece by piece. If failure is qualified as not reaching one's potential, episode 45 is Wells Thompson, says that he would consider his entire professional soccer career a failure, but he doesn't. 
That was my MO. Like, I'm going to be fitter than you. I'm going to be stronger than you. I'm going to kick your ass. That's what I'm going to do. And so when you get to the pro level, everyone is fit. Everyone is smart. Everyone is good. And so really, it comes down to what's between your ears. And I struggled. I really, really struggled. And so, you know, it's, I played nine years professionally. I am just now getting to the point where, and it depends what day you ask me, like, but for the, for the, for the majority of my retirement, I've looked back at my career as a failure. I really have, because I don't think that I, I, I know for certain I didn't reach my potential. I think my mind got in the way. I, I, I really struggled um, when I was in Colorado, actually, depression, anxiety, eating disorder, even suicide ideation, and all of this centered around not starting. For others, failure manifested in competitions where they set personal bests, but there was just one other person better than them that day. Like episode 42's Team Canada Javelin thrower, Tegan Rasha. My best giant meet, meet ever. I uh, was on the biggest competition of my life. I was on Team Canada, it was Pan American Junior Championships, and it was a pretty stacked field. And any other like year, like about 50 meters would have placed you on the podium. And I really wanted to be on that podium. And I go out there and I have a huge personal best, 49 meters, 164 feet. And I placed seven. And yet if it was like pre-sports counseling, Tegan, I would have been like devastated. I came seventh. But I'm like in that day, I literally had the best meet in my entire life and there was nothing more I could have done. So I was like, so, so, so happy that day. And I think that kind of sums up what sports counseling had done to me. It just helped me focus on doing my best and knowing I can't control what anyone else does and just dial into my zone and my plan. And that's how well it worked for me. Success doesn't always mean winning gold medals or getting first place in the same way that failing can mean doing your best, yet not the best. Episode 5's Dr. Eddie O'Connor works with athletes constantly who are battling through perfectionism. And a handful of Closer Mentality episodes have detailed perfectionistic tendencies. Athletes are different. We lean into pain. We want things hard. Competition is fun. And to be a great athlete, you have to be able to also appreciate that. And, and if your identity is all wrapped up in just the winning, well, I don't know that that's really an athlete mindset. Because every athlete I've ever met has lost. Now you don't have to like it, but you do have to learn from it and understand that it's an integral part of the process. Sometimes the best way to fight against the perfectionism is simply to push through. Finish the game, finish the race, like episode 36 is Joss Camara. It might not even be about like being perfect at what I'm, what I'm doing. It, it sometimes just means like, that was ugly, but I landed it. Like that's all I needed. I just needed to get there. I needed to make it. I needed to cross that finish line, whether I looked like absolute garbage or whether I, you know, came in fully dressed up. You know, <laughs> you know, like I, it just it's, it was one of the it's one of those things where I can kind of separate that situation too. And although there are definitely times when I am feeling those things and I'm going at something and I'm constantly going at it, I've kind of figured out a way in most situations because sometimes it is hard, but. I've kind of figured out a way to like, is this worth it for me to keep going? Cause I'm not really that close to it. Do I feel like I made enough progress to where I feel accomplished and I'm not gonna be mad at myself that I didn't keep trying or do I just need a break and recalibrate and then come back to it and then see how I feel again. So I kind of like do a bunch of different things in those situations. It's like a case by case basis. 
Self-regulating those thoughts is difficult, and at times, athletes need other influences to remind them that perfection is unattainable. Episode 32's Sam Carey actually had her coach assign an assistant to monitor how much she mauled over game film because he could see what it was doing for her mental health. So the software that we have to watch film, the coaches can see what players watch film, how many times they've watched it, how much time they spent on film. And my coach one day looked into this and my numbers were just exorbitantly high. Like I'd rewatch our one game five times. And so there was a time he called me into my office and he's like, you're done. Like you're done watching film. Like we're not letting you do this anymore. Um, and so like, he was like, you're clearly overanalyzing yourself. And like, he could kind of tell I was getting to my own head because I'd watch film and I'd be like, uh, like, so now like the things I did wrong on film, I'd be trying to correct, but then I'd be overthinking in my own head during practice. And I just wouldn't be to the caliber of what I wanted. Um, and so for me on my own time, I was not allowed to watch film and I have a coach, um, our defensive coach, especially. So he works specifically with me. He was so great because like our rule was, I was not allowed to watch film on my own. And when I watched film, it was with him and he did a specific job of yes, cutting up some clips of what I needed to work on. But also he's like, and look at these like five clips of the great things you did during the game. Having a visual interpretation of play isn't always a bad thing. In fact, game film is helpful in not only correcting the physical issues, but also crafting the scene for visualization techniques ahead of games. Six guests, both athletes and sports psychologists, prioritize visualization practices to minimize performance anxiety. Episode 33's Dr. Mike Clark detailed how he works through visualization with his clients and how he then sees them implement his teachings on the path to success. Getting some, some visual uh, data is really, really important. Um, so that's usually step one, because that can cut the nerves, that can be fun, that can be all of the, and it's really important because we're going to pull from it like almost immediately. Uh, then I like to have the student athlete talk to me about the, the, the context, the environment, talk to me about it. Is it warm? Is it hot? Is it sunny? Is it too cold because it's climate controlled? Talk to me about all the sensory stuff that you know. Um, what do you smell? What do you taste? What do you feel? How does the turf feel under your feet? Is it, is it concrete right under the turf or do you have some rubber under the turf? Is it soft? You know, just really pulling from all that kind of stuff. Um, and I, I, I tell them straight up at the beginning, hey, if you don't know something, it's okay if you don't know. It'd be better to say you don't know than to guess or to lie um, because we're heavily depending on your memory. Episode six is Ryan Sheriff came on and worked through his pre-World Series visualization exercise. In the World Series, um, Justin Sua, our mental guy, came up to me while we were taking batting practice and he was like, how do you feel right now? I was like, I am so anxious and I have so much anxiety. You have no idea. He's like, what are you thinking about? I was like, I'm thinking about what if I blow the game, like game seven, I come into close because last season I was coming in the eighth and ninth inning a lot. And so I was like, okay, I'm a back end type of dude kind of. Um, and so I was like, what if I blow the game? What if I do this? Like, what if I do that? And he goes, if you're going to go to one extreme of the negative on the what ifs, you have to go to the other extreme of the positive of the what ifs. So what if you strike everybody out? What if you don't give up any hits? Like, what if you do this and do that? I started thinking about that and I'm like, wow, like that is really powerful stuff. And so that's what I used in the bullpen. And I was like, what if I strike this guy out? What if I don't give up any hits? Blah, 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 blah. And that's exactly what happened. Before he gets into a late model race car, episode 34's Christian Rose goes through a mental checklist to make sure that he's in the right mindset to drive upwards of 100 miles an hour. 
So whenever we're going into a late model race, I do whatever I can to prepare, watch film, lean on my teammates, lean on my crew chief and everything on, on what we can do. And then I sit back a night before and there's a couple of books I've read on talking about breathing techniques and, and mentally preparing, like mentally visualizing yourself doing something before you do it. So I'll take 30 minutes before the night before or whatever and sit there and close my eyes and just think about what I'm going to do, how to prepare for it. If I'm in this situation, what, you know, how to operate around it or work around it. And I think those are huge aspects that any athlete or anybody should do because it's mentally, there's a huge component in any sport of it. I, I think it was Yogi Berry said, baseball is 90% mental and 10% skill. And I think that's pretty much any sport. You have to be mentally ready and prepared for any anything that's thrown at you because not everything's going to go your way like we talked about earlier. And it's what can you do in those scenarios to make it better. In sports that thrive on unpredictabilities, like Sheriff and Rose, visualizations are more difficult. For athletes like episode 49's Izzy Connor, her rhythmic gymnastics routines are specific. Her visualization is unique. Visualization, I've honestly been doing that since I was like probably like 13 or 14. Um, but I started doing it in a much more like intentional, like I would meditate beforehand kind of way when I got older. And um, I just noticed when, when I am disciplined about like, you know, if it's like two weeks out from a big competition, like world championships or something like that, um, if I do that every day before I go to training, like I do a focus meditation and then you know, visualize my routines. And also it's not just like visualizing the routines, like I, what was important for me, what my team started doing was like, really like imagining the feeling of like having a good routine or like qualifying for the Olympics. Um, just imagining the feeling of the things that you want to happen going right. That's kind of a little bit of a manifestation technique, but you know, it helps. Visualization builds into one of the most prevalent keywords of this podcast, mental toughness. I spent episode 11 with Matt Rieger, breaking down the aspects that combine to make a person mentally tough. Justin Sua had like a recent thing that was posted of like an article of like his thing of mental toughness. And it's not being like what you think of tough of like rigid and like strict and like all that stuff. It's like being adaptable, being able to go and like adapt to situations, do different things and react to different things in a lot of different ways. It's not being like set in your ways or like, being super strong it's almost the op like not the opposite but like being able to go and do a lot of different skills whether that is breathing or being less tense or it is going and having neutral or positive thoughts or being able to imagine certain things or adapt to a situation that you encounter um so i think that's where it gets used as a term that to try and know the importance of the mental side, but not be fully able to explain what it takes to be mentally tough. Adaptability is crucial as an elite athlete. Episode 44's Coy Robbins detailed how adaptable he has to be every time he gets atop a bucking bull. Really, we're not in control. Um, you know, the bull is, is full-heartedly in control um, and in the lead. Uh, because there's a thing of overriding a bull and, and not riding enough. So if we override, you know, we'll, we'll buck ourselves off. Um, and then if we're not riding enough, we'll buck off as well. So you got to find that like a dance, right? Like I, you know, if you and I were to dance and I'm leading, but you're trying to go way faster than I am, we're going to end up in a bind. 
Adaptability also lends itself to the flow state, when an athlete is living in the moment and focuses fine-tuned to one task and one alone. When episode 20's Jack Beer came back to Georgetown men's soccer after taking time off, his coach trusted him enough to put him in the PK lineup with the national championship on the line. When we went into the national championship game was insane. It was 3-3 and went to penalty kicks. And to have my coach trust me as one of those five guys taking penalty kicks um, for someone that, you know, <laughs> mentally, maybe, you know, another coach wouldn't have trusted someone that takes a season off for, for psychological reasons, you know, to trust me to have a cool head in that moment um, just proves that, you know, it, it speaks to his character and the coaching and the coaching staff's character, which is like, you know, they, they didn't discriminate whatsoever just because of uh, the issues that I was having mentally. And, um, you know, it really, it really showed that, that they wanted me to succeed. When episode three's Dr. Cassidy Preston evaluates an athlete for mental toughness, one of the things that triggers his mind is how quickly an athlete can get into the flow state and perform at their optimal level. Right? One of the best ways that we assess and understand like the big picture of our performance and our mindset is like, okay, what percentage, how much are you in the flow trusting, you know, mentally strong, agile in the present or the zone versus not like in your own head, doubting, worrying. And the more an athlete's in the zone, guess what happens? They're more likely to perform at their potential or close to it. And they go hand in hand. You're, you know, all oh, half the time I'm in my head, half the time I'm in the flow, then you're probably performing at half of your potential. Performing at half of an athlete's potential may not have anything to do at all with performance-based mindset. Two of my favorite episodes of Closer Mentality told stories of self-inflicted suboptimal performances perpetuated by disordered eating. Episode 12's Mackenzie St. Ange and last week's Denver Tyler Palmer both took the time to detail how disordered eating patterns in an effort to become a, quote, better athlete became hindrances. First, Tyler Palmer. I think it's something that it's starting to gain more traction now where we're a little bit more concerned about athletes and disordered eating. But at the time, there was zero talk about it. And so it was it was almost like, yeah, like it's a good thing if you if you look leaner, it's not something that is supposed to be investigated um and you know i would eat normal at you know dinners we would go to chipotle and in my mind i was spinning my wheels thinking oh my gosh like i can't believe i'm going to be eating you know cheese and sour cream and i can't get the rice because too many carbs and i have to get the lettuce and so all these thoughts are happening in my head but i never i never showed that so I was very good at faking this image of like, yeah, like I'm super healthy and this and that, when really like inside my head, I was suffering. St. Ange played two D1 sports at Dartmouth and fully believed that she had to outperform her diet in order to give the sport her all. When she decided to finally share her private story and relationship with food, she found that she wasn't struggling alone. There's an event that goes on on campus um, every year for women, not just athletes, women across campus to stand up on stage and, and speak about what they've gone through as, you know, uh, female identifying people on campus. And uh, I shared kind of a slam poem style piece about, you know, pursuit of perfectionism and how that had driven me to make, you know, success quantifiable and be within my control. and. Yes, it occurred, you know, as Ivy League student athletes in the classroom, but also, you know, in all these other ways and the way that I viewed my body and food and um, sharing that was 
so um, powerful, just the writing process and then standing on the stage and performing it in front of you know everyone on campus. But the most scary piece of that was that there was, you know, 15 of my teammates in the audience. And like, that's what was freaking me out the most. Of all the sacrifices that athletes make daily, realizing that you aren't going through it alone is half the battle. Safe spaces are a huge part of that. Whether those scenarios are imposed by coaches or team employed sports psychology professionals, accessibility to resources will forever be a topic of interest on this podcast. Take the Toronto Raptors' Dr. Alex Arbaugh, for example. In episode 24, he worked through what goes into creating a culture of comfortability within an organization like the NBA. Obviously, at the team level, we put our own unique spin on things and, and are in a bit different context than, you know, sort of the league more broadly. But um, they're really, the, the league has done a great job in terms of how they think about things, talk about things, write about things, produce things, and have done it in a very consistent way. Um, so it's really hard to ignore it, right? Like it comes up a lot and, and you can't just turn a blind eye to all the resources being put out there. And, and that's a real testament to the work that they've done um, to make this accessible and, and part of every team's fabric. Whether it comes directly from a team or rather from a resource like the Pro Football Hall of Fame's Behavioral Health Program, safe spaces can and should be created anywhere. Episode 21's Misty Buck talked about the impact of a mental health resource that informs and treats former football players specifically. People can pick up on that authenticity. So if your organization authentically is offering these holistic health services, mind, body, soul, whatever it would, or whatever it is, that's going to make a difference, right? If you have a, if you just, you have that, um, that culture within your organization versus like it's instead of like a um, oh yeah we, we hired somebody they're here great you know like but if they're actually if you see them if you're comfortable with them if you get to know them and again this is all going to be on the on, on the individual too and it's going to be on the atmosphere does this place feel safe I know this person is here but do I feel safe enough um, in this environment and do I feel safe enough with that person to go and use them? But either way, I think it's a really good thing because even if they choose not to use that help within their organization, maybe that'll say, okay, at least I feel like validated and okay and giving myself permission to seek help elsewhere. Feeling like although you're struggling, there are still people wanting you to succeed is enlightening. Episode 15's Dylan Sheehey used distance running to escape the negative stereotype of indigenous reservation life. He found a group of people who wouldn't see his conditions and label him as a drunkard good for nothing. Through sports, he was able to find connections based outside of anyone's preconceived notions of who he was supposed to be. My whole thing was, that really pushed me to get to that next level is that, that we indigenous people were just as competitive that we were just as strong. And I wanted to, to show that at that next level. Because I always felt like there was this stigma that we were weak and, and that we're just, you know, deadbeat drunkards. You know, that's, that's the, the stereotype that you hear. And I wanted to beat that stereotype. Beating stereotypes is a driving factor for many of season one's guests, including episode 41's Ali Jawad who despite being born without legs and suffering from Crohn's disease, was able to become a Paralympic weightlifter. No Crohn sufferer ever won a medal at any Olympic or Paralympic Games um, at the time. So I knew I was in for a, 
but I, I knew it was going to be difficult. Um, and the best finish, I think, from a chrome sufferer was 10th. And I think it was an American rower. Um, so I, I kind of watched her on YouTube and she kind of said that uh, if it wasn't for Crohn's, she, well, Crohn's didn't like allow her to reach her potential. And I realized that actually this is quite serious now and uh, I'm gonna, this is uh, gonna be an uphill struggle. Um, but the way I prepared for it was, well, we couldn't, we couldn't base it on science because there's no science out there at the time. So I had to become my own guinea pig. So it was trial and error, trial and error, trial and error until we got some sort of stability. It's battling through adversity like that that makes the stories on closer mentality so interesting. Elite athletes simply view goal achievement differently. Working towards success in sport isn't linear, but when you begin to work out next to your sports idols, like episode 19's Jimmy Krupka, the weight of success begins to set in. That summer, I moved out to Park City, Utah, and started training in the U.S. ski team gym, and you know, right in the squat rack next to me was Ted Ligeti, like, you know, the best GS skier of all time, someone who I just, I'd watched tape on him over and over and over again. So that was pretty surreal. And then the, the, the part that you mentioned about, uh, you know, not being there yet, but, you know, hoping to be, that's what I realized is my whole life since I was five, I said, I'm going to make the US ski team. And then when I made the US ski team, I was like, wait, there's so much more to do. Like, I'm not even close to where, like, and then I realized, okay, once I make the B team, once I make the A team, once I make the World Cup, uh, then like that can't be the ultimate goal because then I'm going to want to win. And so I, I kind of, that was a big moment for me of, you know, it, it doesn't end until you retire. Whether they're at the beginning, middle or end of their careers, the athletes and team personnel who've sat down with me over the course of the last 51 episodes are all amazing and have succeeded, whatever that means to them. I've learned from each and every one of them, and these episodes have proven that it doesn't matter what country you represent, how old or experienced you are, or how you cope with adversity, and how much of it you're faced with. There will always be someone to talk to. Thanks so much for sharing 52 weeks of stories with Closer Mentality. As always, I'm your host, Julia Millett. Here's to a positive 2022 and 52 more weeks of amazing people. See you next week.